Hey, people, welcome to this very important edition of In the Thick. This is a podcast about politics, race, and culture from a POC perspective. I'm a very sad Maria Hinojosa. Mm. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And yeah, Maria, it's been a sad couple of days. Yeah, like super tough, very emotional, heartbreaking, scary. Within 24 hours, there were two mass shootings in this country. The first on Saturday in El Paso, Texas, at a Walmart, where at least 21 people have died, many of them Latinx, including seven Mexican nationals. Uh, nearly 30 more people were injured. The second shooting happened Sunday morning in Dayton, Ohio. Nine people were killed, including the shooter's sister, unclear as of Monday morning what relationship that had to the shooting. 27 people injured. Six of the nine victims were black. Um, in fact, Dayton has a very significant black population. Right. And this comes a week after another mass shooting that happened at a summer festival in California. This weekend, both the shooters were young white men. The Ohio shooter was, he was killed by police, but the El Paso, and I'm gonna call him a terrorist, the El Paso terrorist was arrested at the scene and the incident is being investigated as a case of domestic terrorism. You know, Texas is gonna charge him with capital murder and he's very likely gonna face the death penalty Mexico has vowed to take legal action against the United States for what it says, and I'm quoting, a terrorist act against innocent Mexicans. I don't know what's going to happen, but they're going to want his extradition. Um, the motive in the Ohio mass shooting is still not clear. That's Ohio. So we're going to be focusing on the domestic terror attack, the mass shooting that happened um, this past weekend in El Paso, Texas, because we do know the motives in this case. And it is, in fact, everything that we've been worrying about uh, coming true. The targeting of Latinx, Latino, Latina, immigrants, brown people, Spanish-speaking people in Texas. Mm. So we have a show in three parts with three different fronterizos, uh, guests from Texas, from La Frontera, the border. Part one of our show today, we have an interview with Representative Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, one of the two Latinas from the state of Texas to have recently been elected, the first ever to represent Texas, this region, El Paso, in the capital. Right. And I spoke with Congresswoman Escobar on Sunday afternoon. I mean, I'm still thinking about the words that she told me. Let's listen. of El Paso is reacting as she always does, with incredible compassion and kindness. People were lining up to donate blood well over an hour before the blood donation facilities were opened. People are talking on social media about ways to help our local community foundation. Yesterday, like within hours, set up a, um, a fund so that people can donate money in order to, to help those families in need who are going to have funeral costs, health care costs, mental health care costs. And, you know, talking with families who have suffered, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't spoken with all 20, obviously, but um, I've spoken with enough to see the incredible resilience of our community and I am hopeful that the survivors are 
going to battle their way through until they get out of the hospital. I know they will. They are in great facilities with great physicians and nurses and techs. We are going to get past this, Julio, and we are going to get past it in the typical El Paso way, which is with grace and with strength. But, you know, that does not diminish the incredible pain and anger that that we are all feeling, and it really, truly is a mix of pain and anger. Yeah, I mean, you are uh, from Teresa. You, you know, we've talked in the past. You're proud. I mean, you you always share so much about your community. How are you feeling? I mean, you as representative of of your district, what is what has this done to you? To be completely honest, I'm trying to just keep it together for myself because mm-hmm. I'm so sad. I am so sad. You know, the last person who needs to be comforted is me. You know, I, mm-hmm. my family is intact. Every one of my family members got to go home last night. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm far more worried about my fellow Fronterizos and my fellow El Paso. And in some ways, it's, I'm still in shock. I think a lot of people are still in shock. And yeah. I think it's going to come in waves the way that grief normally does. And we will all be there for one another, but, you know, we, we, we will persevere. And we are a very united community, a very resilient people. Um, but, but, yeah, we definitely need tremendous comfort right now. Yeah, Congresswoman, obviously, it's becoming more and more clear that, you know, this is a possible hate crime against the border community. Where do we begin to react to this? How best do we start reacting to to what seems to be sort of the extreme example of an attack on the Latino community, the Mexican-American community in El Paso, the border? I mean, how do you piece this all together? Because words have been used against this community for years, and now we're seeing a tragic consequence. And let's call let's call it for what it is. Many of those words are emanating from the White House. Um, you know, the the rally in Florida where the president ramped up his rhetoric against migrants and someone yelled out from the crowd, shoot him. I will tell you who yelled that mm-hmm. when I heard that it was like a punch in the gut and my fear was that somebody would. And instead of having a leader that leads with love, you have a leader who leads with hate. And there have been too many people who have refused to call it out. I've been criticized by folks for, during the press conference, calling it out. But when you don't call out hate, you give it cover. And we also have to lead with love. And we have to be the example. And I believe El Paso absolutely is that example of leading with love. You know, it's, it's what Martin Luther King taught us, that hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can. And we have to continue celebrating who we are, the location that we are lucky enough to live in on the U.S.-Mexico border, the rich traditions that we have in our binational community, the incredible diversity that makes us stronger and better and safer. We have to continue to be who we are and celebrate that in the face of ugliness and stand strong in the face of ugliness 
but also be united and lead the way with love. I know it's been a difficult time for you as a representative for all of the apostles, for everybody out there. It's such an amazing community. I just want to thank you so much for your time. And mucho amor para el paso. Thank you so much, Congresswoman. Thank you, Julio. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For the second part of our show today, joining us from El Paso, Texas, is Bob Moore. He is the former editor-in-chief of the El Paso Times. He's an award-winning journalist. He's president and CEO of El Paso Matters now. Bob, thank you for joining us on this very difficult time. How are you doing, Bob? I'm okay. And uh, uh, trust me, uh, El Paso uh, takes the love uh, to heart. uh, And we really appreciate all of the thoughts and prayers from around the country the last couple of days. So for people who don't know, El Paso is over 80 percent Latinx and and it's really a bicultural community um, because it's a community of people who are international. They go back and forth on a border. Um, So this is really an attack on a borderland. And that means that it's impacted two countries. It's impacted Mexico and it's impacted the United States. And, you know, I mean, I've been to El Paso so many times in my life and there's just this tremendous amount of community love in El Paso. Right. So, Bob, what can you tell us about the victims? And and what can you tell us about kind of how your community is as difficult as it is to put into words? I, I'm glad you mentioned the, the bicultural nature of our community. I would also add it, it's, a, it's a binational community because you can't separate El Paso and, and Ciudad Juarez. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's a river that runs between us. Uh, I prefer to think that the border joins us rather than divides us. Hmm. At least seven of the people who were murdered were from Mexico. They had come on uh, a Saturday morning to shop. Mexican shoppers are uh, a huge part of the economy of El Paso, and they're our neighbors just as much as, as El Pasoans are. So we grieve their loss. Um, yeah. We've had a number of families in, in El Paso touched by this. We know at least one child uh, was orphaned because his parents were murdered as his mother held him. Oh, I'm so sorry, Bob. Oh, my God. Uh, The mother used her body to shield the baby uh, and lost her life. And then a few hours later, they found out um, that the father had also perished in in this attack. Uh, We know that uh, at least one little boy died. uh, for no other reason than uh, he, the color of his skin. Uh, Jesus. Uh, this is uh, just unimaginable. And, you know, we I think we've become numb to mass shootings uh, in, in this country, tragically. Th- this is a different form, though. Yeah. This was a person who drove 10 hours to come to this beautiful community so that he could murder people because of their nationality, uh, uh, because of who their parents are. Uh, this is just uh, beyond sickening. Uh, and I, I wish I could say I was surprised by it. Yeah. Uh, but the truth is El Paso has literally had a bullseye placed on it uh, for the mm. last two years by this administration. Mm. And, and we can't mm. feign Correct. surprise Correct. that... 
when the president talks about an invasion that someone didn't take it upon himself to react the way you're supposed to with real invasions. You repel it. Yeah. So, Bob, I'm I'm sorry, but I think what you're saying, because a lot of people are talking about President Trump and his rhetoric about specifically immigrants, Mexicans, you know, the invaders. You're saying specifically that you're it seems to me that you're holding this president accountable for the fact that he has, in fact, talked about El Paso. Right. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, do I think that Donald Trump wished that people in El Paso would be killed? No, I, I, don't, I don't believe that at all. But he has upped his rhetoric. And it's not just with, with Latinos. It's Muslims. It's, it's whoever may be different or whoever may not sing his praises enough. But certainly from the moment he came down that escalator in Trump Tower in 2015 to announce his candidacy and to describe Mexicans as rapists and criminals, it's clear that his language has dehumanized the people of this community and the people of Mexico and, and so many other people. And when you dehumanize people, when you refer to invasions and infestations, you can't sit back and say, oh, I didn't know that people were going to act upon those words. That's that's just incredibly naive. Bob, it's it's good that you bring this up. Um, I wrote a piece for NBC News this week that basically traced the history of, of the word invasion, especially in White House statements, in press remarks. I mean, it's all there. It's and, you know, the White House has become a repository of this language and it's official. It's become official government language, words like invaded and invasion. And we know about the manifesto. And then there was this from 2020 presidential candidate and El Pasoan Beto O'Rourke when he was asked by a reporter about the impact of dehumanization by Trump. Just briefly, sir, can I just ask, is there anything in your mind that the president can do now to make this any better? Uh, what do you think? Um, you know the shit he's been saying. He's, he's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Um, I, I don't know, like, members of the press, what the fuck? Hold on a second. You know, I, 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 it's, it's, these, um, it's these questions that you know the answers to. I mean, connect the dots about what he's been doing in this country. Um, he's not tolerating racism. He's promoting racism. He's not tolerating violence. He's inciting racism and violence in this country. So, um, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know what kind of question that is. So first, it's important to understand that, that Beto was coming from uh, a vigil, uh, a very emotional vigil to, right. to honor those who had been killed. Right. What you're hearing from Beto O'Rourke, uh, the anguish uh, in his voice and the frustration, you're hearing from El Pasoans uh, from every walk of life. When, when you talk to Veronica Escobar, the congresswoman from this region, you hear the same anguish and anger uh, uh, in, in her voice. When you talk to priests, uh, when you talk to hairdressers, it really doesn't matter that that anguish and anger uh, is there because our community was targeted. The, the, the anger, but in a very dignified way that you hear from the leaders in El Paso, reflects the sentiment of the people. The first reaction on, on Saturday morning, of course, was shock. But that changed overnight, I think, Saturday into Sunday morning when it became very evident that this wasn't just another mass shooting. This was somebody who targeted our community. And people should be angry about that. If, you, if you're if you not angry 
or if you don't understand the anger that's coming from El Paso, I probably can't have a conversation with you. Uh, uh, our neighbors were murdered um, uh, solely because of their heritage. Uh, uh, and, and we've seen this as a community coming for two years. This is also a community, it's important to understand, that has been the focal point of a lot of the president's border policies. Family separation started here. Uh, uh, right now, uh, El Paso and Juarez are the centerpiece of the administration's Remain in Mexico program, where we're sending asylum seekers back yeah, to, to very dangerous conditions. In my community in March, I saw people who were forced to sleep under a bridge simply because they had come to this country uh, wow. to seek asylum and our government couldn't find a way to handle them. I have, in the last couple of months, written stories about the autopsy reports of four children who died uh, in our government custody. Wow. Mm. Yeah. All of this is a piece of the same thing. This, this shooting is related to all of that. Yeah. You were talking about how you know this is official policy and official rhetoric. These, these are all official policies. These are actions by our government in our names that is inflecting tremendous misery and suffering here. And, and we can have a conversation about immigration and about border enforcement. Right, right. But we have to understand that these are human lives that, that are being touched by this. And I think that's what's gotten lost in so much of the rhetoric and Big why time. it's so easy for a man who lives north of Dallas to grab his AK-47 and drive to El Paso because they're not seen as human beings. And I think that's something that we just absolutely have to change if we're going to put a stop to this. Hey, you're listening to In the Thick. I'm Maria Hinojosa with my co-host, Julio Ricardo Varela. Today, we're doing special coverage of this weekend's mass shootings. Let's get back to the conversation. So, Bob, look, I, I think this is, uh, for journalists, a lot of this is also incredibly difficult because it's it's really forcing us, again, to have to make calls and calling things that we don't want to have to be doing. So I'm going to pose a very challenging question to you. Do mm. you feel like because of what just happened in El Paso, we actually have to talk about this in particular as a form of ethnic cleansing because you made that connection to the babies dying in El Paso and now somebody killing mm. brown Spanish speaking immigrants for the for the for, for no reason but for their ethnicity. What do you think about that? As horrible as it sounds. I'm cautious about getting into specific labels because then you have this, oh, how can you say that? Mm. I don't think we necessarily need to come up with a unique label for cruelty and inhumanity and, and dehumanization. Here's another thing that people need to think about. You know, a few weeks ago, the, the nation was really shaken by a picture of, of a father and his young child who drowned trying to cross um, uh, the, the Rio Grande to seek, to seek asylum. And that picture was shocking. But we've had eight thousand people die in the last 20 years trying to cross the border. And the vast majority of those deaths are because of policies that this country adopted to make the border more difficult to cross and to force people who wanted to try to cross into much more dangerous crossings. Now, again, we can have a conversation about whether that's an acceptable toll to pay for border security, right, right. but we don't. We never have that conversation. And I think in part, 
It's because we view people from Mexico and from Central America and from Africa and from Asia as somehow less than human because they're not American. You could call it ethnic cleansing. You can call it genocide. I don't care what label you want to put on it, but it's cruel and it's deliberate and it's dehumanizing. And if we can't change the way, just the fundamental way that we look at people who are trying to come into this country, we're, we're going to see repeats of El Paso, maybe not on the scale we saw. I, I pray mm. to God we never see anything on this scale again. Mm. Um, mm. But you're going to see attacks on individuals. Uh, you're, you're going to see immigrant kids taunted and being made to suffer, again, for no other reason than because they came from someplace different. Uh, we, we have to begin to grapple with the whole dehumanization aspect of our rhetoric and, and frankly, about the way we view people from outside our country. We, you know, we were caught up in this ideal uh, of American exceptionalism. And this is a wonderful country. It's so wonderful that people are flocking to come here. But somehow we see those people who are striving for the same thing that my ancestors were striving for when they left Ireland, that, that somehow they, they're, they're less than me. Yeah, that's something that we have talked a lot about on In the Thick in the Past. And Maria and I, we talk about dehumanization but we also talk about something else that has come out of this horrific tragedy. And that's sort of the spike of hate crimes, white supremacist violence in this country. And we've been doing this on In the Thick for years. I mean, since the show started. And it's about calling it a thing. Like, this is what happened. We have to say words like domestic terrorism and white supremacy. We did a couple of interviews, Maria, with Mike German, who's a former FBI agent who once infiltrated white supremacy groups undercover. And he has always told us that the FBI, no matter what they say, has always deprioritized investigating these type of cases and prosecuting white supremacist violence. And now with Trump in office, any semblance of that is, seems to be going away even more. So let's, let's actually hear from Mike in his own words from a past episode of In the Thick. So this goes back to Jim Comey refusing to call Dylan Roof's violence in, at the Mother Emanuel Church terrorism. And it's astonished me because I worked undercover in neo-Nazi groups in the 1990s, and nobody hesitated to call it terrorism. Nobody suggested we didn't have sufficient laws to justify our investigation and to secure effective prosecution. So I don't, I'm not sure where this came from, but there's this push right now that, again, has been going on since about 2015, where the Justice Department officials are saying we don't have a domestic terrorism statute, so we need more power if you want us to target these groups. And that's just not true. In fact, the Brennan Center is releasing a report that will show that, that there are 57 crimes of terrorism defined in federal law. 51 of those apply to domestic as well as international terrorism. So the government has ample authority to justify deeper and more comprehensive investigations of these groups that produce violence. And in our conversations with Mike, we've learned that even though federal law includes domestic terrorism, these laws that are on the books on domestic terrorism have actually been used to prosecute cases with a foreign connection. So not necessarily a domestic one. You know, the FBI is supposed to be protecting us, but are they, in fact, looking for white supremacist militias right. actively? 
But, you know, as usual in this aftermath, there's been a lot of gaslighting, a lot of throwing terms around. So, you know, the president is up there saying that this is because of, you know, video games. (laughs) Then the next thing we know is that he's talking about mental health, right? Suddenly he becomes informed and cares about mental health. Anyway, Carolyn Chen of ProPublica did a tweet thread about all of this, citing research that found, in fact, that mental health symptoms are not strongly related to or are a root cause of gun violence. The research shows that if you limited gun access for those suffering with mental health issues, this would only lower their suicide rates, not other gun violence. So it's like a prejudice against people with mental health issues that assumes that they're going to pick up a gun and do something. Um, Julio, in fact, you you experienced a, a mental health challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, I've been very open about my clinical depression in the past. I've I've gone through several bouts. So the fact that, you know, you see the president talking and, and like, oh, we got to focus on mental illness in his statement. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, mental illness. And I'm sitting here going, are you kidding me? When I was in my deepest hole, I couldn't even I was like I was breathing. And that's what that's what we're going to focus on here. And this is a premeditated domestic terrorist attack where someone drove nine hours, like Bob said, and said, I'm going to El Paso because I know what that place represents. It's insulting. I refuse to let mental illness be be the cause of this. This is what it takes, right? We we are prepared to open up our hearts to talk about our deepest issues. But in fact, Bob, in this case, why does it matter to call this act and prosecute this violence as acts of domestic terrorism? Why does it matter to say that as opposed to mental health, you know, video games, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I want to first point out that it's not just the president who talks about mental health. Governor Greg Abbott of Texas came to this community on Saturday after the shooting. Yes, that's right. At the same table with the chief of police of El Paso, who announced that there was a nexus to a hate crime in 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 this in this massacre, and the governor of the state could not bring himself to say the words hate crime. Yeah, he only would talk about mental health as as a cause of this. Mm. Um, so mm. it's really important, I think, for a couple of reasons to focus on the hate crime and the domestic terror issue. One, we have to break out of this mindset we've sunk into that it's just another mass shooting. I'm not saying this is is worse because of the motivation, but it's different, and we need we need to understand that. Secondly, if we don't call it for what it is, and and, and I, I want to credit uh, John Bash, the U.S. Attorney for for this area, because he spoke very very passionately about this being a a, a hate crime and being an act of domestic terror. We have to do it because if we don't, then things just repeat themselves. We have to, as a society, uh, take a stand to say that that this is not acceptable and we will call it for what it is. And, And I was happy to see the president denounce racism in his address to the nation, but he couldn't bring himself to talk about white supremacy, and he still hasn't even begun to assess his own words. Exactly. You know, I don't want to believe that Donald Trump would sit there and really encourage the murder of people. That's not what I'm saying. But 
yeah. all of those actions and and the jokes and the laughter uh, are going to serve as motivation for people uh, who may be considering the, those kinds of actions. And there has to be accountability for that. Bob Moore, former editor-in-chief of the El Paso Times, uh, president and CEO of El Paso Matters. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day during a time when El Paso needs you and and so does the rest of the country. Julio and I really want to thank you for being so open and sharing your thoughts on this edition of In the Thick. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it. For our final segment on today's show, calling in from El Paso, Texas, is Cynthia Pompa. She's the advocacy manager of the Border Rights Center at the American Civil Liberties Union of Texas. Cynthia, again, I'm sending you a lot, a lot of love and light. Um, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for inviting me. So El Paso is your home. Um, you actually grew up going to this very Walmart. It's like a very, very popular Walmart, actually. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and you've explained how this particular Walmart is like a center of Juarez and El Paso because so many people from Juarez actually, you know, they go shopping early in the mornings from Mexico into this Walmart. Right. But I just want to know, like, what's your temperature check? Like, you've had a terrorist attack targeted your community. You said this. In your tweet, you said, I've always felt so safe in El Paso, and now I feel anxious and afraid. This is what white supremacist terror feels like. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I'm honestly still very shocked. Um, I think there's a lot of pain and grief around. I think it's it's hard to explain, right, for, for people who've never been to the border or El Paso, how El Paso and Juarez are, are you know, literally next to each other. Right. I grew up in Juarez. I grew up crossing the border every day to come to school, like many people do. You know, thousands of people do that. So this particular Walmart sits um, in the middle of of the whole region, very close to Juarez. You can see you can see Mexico from the Walmart. Wow. Um, and I grew up just like many brown families going there weekly to shop. So it is very shocking to think. And to feel um, this white uh, terrorism in, in our community. I mean, why does it feel so shocking? Why is there fear out there? What has changed in El Paso the last couple of years? I think it's, it's all of a sudden we realize we're the target of violence because of the color of our skin. In our own home, in, in a place where the majority of people look like me, in a place where... I felt very safe. I've always felt very safe, like I said. But now we know that that's not true, right? And and I think just reality hit very hard. It hit home, literally. The fact that, you know, this this white man drove from across the state hours um, to shoot at, 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 at brown people in a, in a border community. And killed, and many were injured. It's 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 still very hard to process, but there's this constant fear now that that I don't think is is gonna leave us hmm. for a while. Hmm. So, Cynthia, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, your own personal feelings, but you're also an organizer. 
and you organize the immigrant community, the border community in El Paso. What do you want the rest of the world to really understand about this area, this this borderland that you are a part of? And especially now with all this coverage and it feels like everyone in the world is converging on El Paso, what's being misunderstood or overshadowed about your community? Yeah, thank you for that question. Border communities for decades have been forced to endure militarization and hyper-policing and hyper-surveillance. And recently, of course, with this administration, we've been the focal point of, of these false narratives about what this place is about. It's, it's very frustrating for border communities to hear you know, politicians and the president talk about our home in a way that is one completely false but full of hate. And I think now we're seeing the direct consequences of, of that. Yeah. So, Cynthia, you know, I think we're all feeling so, ay, tan, tan, tan tristes, you know. Estamos caminando con el corazón tan, tan, tan pesado. You know, and then we're thinking about our rage, you know, our anger. We've got so many emotions, right? You know, our fears. But I have to ask you this, and, and this is like a question that's kind of coming out of left field, but you know who I am. So so in, in your sense, knowing your people from El Paso, are people going to be like, no, pues, yeah, you know, I'm definitely mm. not voting now. I'm definitely not going to come out. I'm, you know. Yeah. Or, or do you really think that people are going to be like, sabes qué? Ahora sí. And, and is that ahora sí going to be, I'm going to vote for, you know, whoever is going to run against Trump because I tie him to the horror that happened in my community? Or I've thought, you know, will there be more Latinos who are like, pues, you see? You know, I, I don't know. Mm. And I know that's a challenging question to ask at a very deeply emotional time, but I've asked myself that question a couple of times since this happened. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. I hope, and I've seen a lot of people come together. Uh, you know, we had two vigils yesterday with hundreds of people showing up, recognizing the tragedy that we've gone through. I think a lot of people, you know, who read the statement of the shooter are realizing and are acknowledging that this is domestic terrorism fueled by a president. And at the same time, a lot of our Border Patrol agents are Hispanic or, mm -hmm. you know, Mexican-American. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I really don't know, but I, I think this is a moment to talk about those things and to acknowledge that we can be oppressive against each other. Mm -hmm. We can be racist, mm. like we, like many times, actually, many Mexicans are against people from Central America. Mm. I think this is a time to recognize that that white supremacy is a global issue that impacts everybody. I really, really hope that we realize that we're repeating the same hateful rhetorics that leads to violence. That at the end of the day, is, you know, we're the targets of. So yeah. um, I really, really hope that happens. Hmm. Ay, Cynthia Pompa, te mandamos muchos abracitos, eh? Oh, thank you. Muchas yeah. gracias. Muchísimas gracias. No, thank you.
You know, Julio, this has been uh, yet again another challenging time. Hi, Julio. Our lives are on the line. They have been. Mm. Yeah. You know, Maria, one thing that I've noticed in the last couple of days that have really struck me, not forgetting the real stories of these lost human lives, because that's the most important story. Mm. And um, I try to couch my comments with that in mind, because I also think it's really important Mm -hmm. to look at how we as a country are informing our fellow Americans in the world. And I was really bothered when news of this, um, the El Paso shooting, and then obviously with the mass shooting that happened, you know, hours later in Dayton, how people led it to be like, I don't know, who knows what this is? It could be a white supremacist. Mm. People were afraid to bring up, at least in my opinion, were afraid to bring up how clearly anti-migrant, anti-Mexican, anti-Central American, anti-Latino, anti-Latinx, anti-Latin American, this really was. This is what it is. There's no two sides to this story. This is the story of American terrorism. It's a white male, white nationalist, terrorist who went to go target brown people because he felt uncomfortable. He didn't want to be replaced. Mm. And we have to keep saying that. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. Remember, dear listener, if you can take a moment to go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us, um, even in these difficult moments, it really matters. Uh, remember, you can listen to us on Pandora, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In The Thick Show and like us on Facebook. In The Thick is produced by Nicole Rothwell and our New York Women's Foundation Ignite fellow, Noor Saudi. Our audio engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Our digital editor is Luis Luna. Our intern is Noelis Siriaco. The music that you heard is courtesy of Nacional Captain CZK Records. Let's all hug the people we love all around us and mm. speak to mm. immigrants, say hello to them, speak Spanish, say hello to Latinos, Mexicans, show each other love. All of us, we got to show each other love. Julio, love you. And everyone, <laughs> see you next time. Maria, I love you too. And uh, peace out to everyone. Stay strong, guys. Stay strong. expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media 
or its employees.